0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. While scientists have warned that an increase of more than 2 degrees centigrade this century could trigger disastrous consequences, such as mass extinction of species and accelerated melting of the polar ice sheets, today negotiators from the United States are trying to weaken the language of a climate change declaration set to be unveiled at next month's G8 summit. With us today is George Monbiot, a weekly columnist for The Guardian newspaper and the author of Heat, How to Stop the Planet from Burning?, George Monbiot, welcome to Weekly Signals.
1: Thank you very much.
0: How are you today?
1: I'm not too bad, thanks. Very... A little bit croaky. I've been under the weather here. There's been a lot of rain. Oh no! But I'm not sure it has anything to do with climate change. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, tell me, where are we at? At climate change, have we have we gone over the top? Is there any? Uh, are we past the point of no return?
1: I, I don't think we are yet, but. Uh. It's getting pretty difficult now. Um, The longer, we've been told this for a long time now, that the longer we leave this problem, the harder it will be to solve. And it has now been left for some 20 years. Uh, I first became interested in climate change in roughly 1987, so, um, and it's been extremely frustrating over that period seeing how little progress has been made, how many empty promises have been made by politicians, and how effective the movement by those who claim that climate change isn't taking place has been at sowing doubt in the public mind. Um, and the result of that is that we now have very little time to act and a very big technological, economic, and political challenge.
0: Now, why do you think the opposition to this has been so effective? I know why they're the opposition. I think it's because of greed. But why do you think they've been so effective at uh, at, at convincing people that their welfare isn't at stake?
1: It's partly because that's what people want to hear. Mm. People are in denial about climate change in the same way as you might be in denial about having a serious illness or about having enormous debts. People don't want to hear the bad news. And um, and as a result, this network of people who have been funded by ExxonMobil and other fossil fuel companies to maintain the fiction that man-made climate change is not taking place receive a receptive audience. Uh, of people who are well-meaning but just don't want to believe what's
2: happening. I heard this uh, described uh, just a couple of days ago by someone uh, that we had Elizabeth Colbert on. She she's written a book mm. called Field Notes on the Catastrophe, and basically she said that this is one case where the experts are are overheated, if you will. That's not the right word to use, but they're they're actually much more. Um, alarmed than the general public is, which is sort of the reverse of the of a, the way it usually unfolds is the, the public is alarmed, and the experts finally get it, get it and start to, to to pay more attention uh but i want to know um I know here in america there doesn 't seem to be a tremendous amount of public increasingly of in public support for for doing something about this. What is it like in Europe? Is it a different kind of dynamic there?
1: Well, the the debate about climate change has been much more prominent in Europe and has been raging much more fiercely here for a very long time. And there's no question that politically we are ahead of the United States on this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, Though in terms of actual practical action... Well, it's a mixed picture. We're definitely further ahead than the federal government of the United States. There's no doubt about that. Though some of the state governments in the U.S. have been making some very interesting moves on climate change. Mm -hmm. In the U.K., for example, we have got what looks like a reasonably ambitious target for a 60% cut in carbon dioxide emissions by 2050. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a government target which has now been set into law. And future governments, if they're not on track to meet that cut, can be taken to the courts and prosecuted. This is um, an entirely new move by government. No government has ever subjected itself to that sort of legislation before. Mm -hmm. So it looks very positive. There's just two problems. One, that the target is too little, too late Mm -hmm. to stop runaway climate change from taking place. And two, that the government's method of auditing its own carbon dioxide cuts is completely skewed with the result that it constantly allows itself to look better than it actually is. And, and so um, we, we have a lot of spin around this issue. We have a lot of greenwash around this issue. But in terms of actual practical steps to stop runaway climate change, they are few and far between.
0: You said your government is doing sixty percent by twenty fifty, and you've suggested ninety percent in cuts. What what's the date on your uh, proposal?
1: Mm, by twenty thirty. Twenty thirty. So this sounds yes, it sounds like a very tall order. It it it's what the science demands rather than the politics. Right. And 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 what you do in effect is to look at the relationship between the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the likely temperature which results from that, you look at um, the the declining ability of the world's natural systems of the biosphere to absorb carbon dioxide and, and methane, which declines as the Earth gets hotter, and you look at rising world population. And so you come to the conclusion that if that cut is to be equally distributed, so in other words, if everyone on Earth has an equal right to produce carbon dioxide then we need a global cut of roughly 60 percent by 2030 and that means in the rich nations a cut of roughly 90 percent by 2030. Now what I've done in my book is to try to show how that can be done whilst maintaining our quality of life and I I think I have demonstrated that we can indeed bring about a 90 percent cut in carbon dioxide emissions without triggering a political or economic disaster.
0: We're speaking with George Monbiot. The book is Heat, How to Stop the Planet from Burning. And uh, give us an example then of what we can do. What does that 90% cut mean for uh, industrialized nations by 2030? Do do we have to jump into that 90% right away or or is that the goal for 2030 for one thing?
1: Well, the the steeper the down curve is, the easier this problem will be to deal with. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that if you make your cuts early on and you get your curve down as quickly as you possibly can, the total amount of carbon dioxide you produce by 2030 is less than if you have a much smoother, shallower curve. Um, And and so even if you reach the same target at the same time, you could still cause far more global warming by doing it late rather than doing it early. Um, That that being said, we, we, we have then to jump into these um, technological solutions as quickly as we can. What is frustrating to me is that they're all there and ready to be deployed and yet they're just not being used as a result of a lack of political will. Let, let, Let me give you an example. There's been a great deal of fuss made about alternative fuels for cars and a huge investment in the U.S. into hydrogen, similarly in Europe and in Japan, huge investment into biofuels, which now turn out to be doing more harm than good. But there's a much, much simpler and more direct way of dealing with your emissions from from vehicles. And that is... To switch over to the electric car but to give it a major advantage which it doesn't currently have the ability of people to drive any distance they wish without having to plug it in for eight hours to recharge the batteries Mm -hmm. and the way that works is as follows that you pull into your filling station you open your bonnet a crane comes over and it lifts out the battery and it puts a new one in, and off you go. And instead of having your own battery, you lease it from the network of filling stations, and you buy the electricity that it contains. Well, mm-hmm. It takes no more time than filling up your tank with gasoline.
0: That's That's, uh, have you made this proposal to your government or to any other governments, and has there been I, any yes, response? Uh,
1: well, what's interesting about it is that nobody has said it can't be done. Yeah. There appears to be no technological barrier to doing it. But what it requires is a government to take the leap and say, this must be done. Because until government imposes it on the networks of filling stations and on the car manufacturers, they've got no interest in doing it. And it's a bit like the situation when the U.S. entered the Second World War in 1941 with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, that the automakers and the other manufacturers, they didn't have... An interest in switching over from civilian to military production, but the government turned up and said, "Thou shalt switch over from civilian to military mm-hmm. production, and thou shalt do it in this time scale and they did it with extraordinary speed I, and, and I, they were forced to do it
2: i'm sorry I, I just wanted to say what this this particular issue highlights for me is who government re, re, the constituent of of the governments today really is. It. I don't think. To me, when I go and fill up my car, it doesn't matter to me really if it's gasoline or if it's a biofuel or if it's a battery. I don't really mm. have. I'm not invested. What well, matters to you? But well, it does matter not. in the sense that I do care about the environment. But I'm saying, most people they want to get from point A to point B. How they get there is of little. They're not invested in how they get there. Mm. And and what mm. and what you're saying and what I'm hearing is, we're really finding out who the constituents of government really are today. And it's business yeah, and it's yeah. industry that is is invested in continuing to – in these polluting kind of technologies.
0: Now, you mentioned well, – uh, go ahead.
1: No, 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 no. Please, please, please speak. All right.
0: Um, I know that uh, air travel has been something you've spoken about quite a bit, and it's even uh, – I think you were going to come over here to the States to promote your book and then decided against it based on the fact that you'd be burning uh, uh, so much carbon in getting here. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about to.
1: I have to confess that I've had my arm twisted. (laughs) <laughs> my, my publisher did a dirty trick on me. He uh-huh. he got all these environmentalists in the United States to write to me saying, "Please come. It will make up for the carbon emissions." Uh-huh. <laughs> and eventually, I caved in. So, but um, I, 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 I quite reluctantly, because I I I I really try not to fly at all. But I suppose there is an argument for making an exception when it comes to campaigning on climate change. Well, well tell anyway, us about air travel. Isn't that yeah. one
0: of the, the most important things we could do to cut down and, and uh, help with uh, global warming?
1: It's, it's absolutely critical. And the big problem with aviation is as follows, that there are no good technological substitutes for the way we fly today. That in every other aspect of our economy that I looked at, whether it's to do with Um, With housing, with heating, with electricity, with surface transport fuel, there are very good ways of changing the way we go about our lives. But with aviation, the only option here is to cut down because getting a plane up into the air and keeping it there is subject to some very strict technological constraints and and it's not easy to say, okay, we'll just do it in another way, we'll use a different kind of fuel or a different kind of engine. They're not there. They're not currently available. And the existing technologies have more or less reached the limits of their efficiency. People talk about hydrogen planes, for example. Those would be far worse in terms of their impact on climate change than planes fueled by kerosene. And the reason being that hydrogen is an extremely bulky fuel for the amount of energy that you get out of it. It means you need a much bigger bodied plane if you're going to use hydrogen as your fuel. That means it must um, fly in the stratosphere where there's where, where there's less air resistance. Hydrogen plus oxygen being burnt in the stratos- stratosphere goes to H2O, water in other words and um And water released in the stratosphere is an extremely powerful greenhouse gas. Um, a hydrogen plane, according to a royal commission over here in the united in the United Kingdom, would cause thirteen times as much climate change as an ordinary subsonic jetliner
0: hmm. i 've always been the, of the mind that travel is greatly overrated anyway I think people should <laughs> should stand in the place where they live and make it better instead of uh, uh, you know, well, I, I
1: completely agree with you. And, mm-hmm. and there, is, there are good substitutes for traveling. And and, a, and for mu- much of this book tour, um, I've been conducting the global book tour from my own office and, and, and doing video conferences and interviews like this. And it works. It's satisfactory. You don't have to be there except for these rather Neanderthal media organizations who ha- have told my publisher, unless <laughs> his bum is on our seat, we are not going to talk to yeah. him. Oh,
2: that's... Um,
1: which, 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 which just, to me, is ridiculous. Yeah. I don't understand why I have to be there. Now, but so... um, as all these environmentalists that keep telling me, unless you go and turn up, you'll be losing a big opportunity to talk about this issue. And uh, so, so I've been coerced, I've been persuaded.
0: <laughs> yes. So, So you did come to the United States. Uh, you did. I'm, fly. I'm
1: flying tomorrow.
0: Oh my goodness! I did not know the uh, the schedule. Well, shame yeah. on you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Right. We're we're glad to have you over here. And and I, I think <laughs> mainly it's it's that most uh, folks are traveling for frivolous reasons. they they and, mm. and the ones that that upset me the most are the ones that that travel. You know, uh, that fly five thousand miles to watch some environmental event happen, like like turtles <laughs> laying eggs, which is it's yes. just got to be. Yes yeah it the the uh, <laughs> most hypocritical thing anyone could do yeah, i think yeah. well you you, uh, yeah, you it, re- oh go ahead
1: you you re- well, it, it's very interesting that there's a whole new industry um set up um over here calling itself ethical travel uh-huh. and and some of these companies are trying to persuade people that if you go to from britain to peru you can help them build some some little footbridges in their valley, and that will mean that you're doing a great thing for the world. And they just completely ignore the impact of the flights to get which massively outweigh any good you might do.
2: Well, I don't. I honestly don't think people have ever thought about air travel in that regard. And mm-hmm. I think the and mm-hmm. you're bringing that to the attention of a lot of people who had really never considered it. So, I uh, congratulate you for that. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Uh, I I wanted to get a little bit. Uh, we we're we don't have a lot of time, but I did want to talk a little bit about biofuels because uh, mm-hmm. we, our, uh, our president um, has been touting them, just got back from Brazil where they signed a major agreement with the Brazilians to yeah. continue this. What you consider, and after reading more about it, I consider also something that it will wreck the planet, as you put it. We need a five-year moratorium mm-hmm. is what you were saying. Uh, why don't we get into that a little yeah. bit? Yeah.
1: Um, the the uh, At first, when I first came across them about um, 10 years ago now, I thought this was a great idea and it uh, had romantic appeal to me. Instead of having this filthy black sludge which we pull out of the bowels of the earth to distill and put into our cars, we are going to get our fuel from great waving fields of golden corn and it just sounded lovely. And as soon as I began to examine the implications, I realized it was a complete disaster. And for several years now, I've been campaigning against biofuels. And finally, people seem to have caught up with this and and, and woken up to to the fact that this is a big problem for two reasons. Number one is that you set up a competition between feeding cars and feeding people. By definition, the cars win, because people who can afford to run a car are, by definition, Richer than people who are in danger of starvation. Mm-hmm. And he who gets the food is the one with the money. Mm-hmm. And, and and so the car drivers beat the hungry every time. And already, even with a very small proportion of the world's transport fuels being supplied by biofuel, we've seen a doubling in the price of corn as a result, we've seen a near doubling in the price of wheat as a result. The second problem is that many of these biofuels have been grown in virgin habitats particularly former rainforest and what we're seeing in southeast asia at the moment in malaysia and indonesia is a mass clearance of rainforest in order to plant palm oil in order to supply biodiesel to the european market now in doing so you create far greater carbon dioxide emissions than you could ever compensate for by using that biofuel as opposed to gasoline. Um, it's up to 33 times worse wow. to be producing it just in terms of carbon, uh, carbon emissions alone to be clearing forests and planting palm oil and producing palm oil. Even if you produce it for the next 30 years, it's still up to 33 times worse. Um, and, and you do far, far more harm to the planet, both in terms of carbon emissions and in terms of biodiversity, than you do by using gasoline. Biofuel is worse for the planet than gasoline.
0: We're speaking with George Monbiot, the author is "Heat: How to Stop the Planet from Burning." Did you have another question? No,
2: right I here? just, I, I just think that we're running headlong into this uh, biofuel, and like so many of these other sort of, uh, to me, doomed technologies, um, it's going to take. The, the, we don't have much time and i just see this we're running out of time and we're wasting time going down these dead ends and that this is the thing it that be, this is the thing that keeps so she, me up about, uh, thinking
1: about this stuff and also so you can see why can't you you mm-hmm. can see why people like bush plump for biofuels it's because it doesn't offend anybody's commercial interests in fact far from it is actually very popular with farmers with the oil industry, with the grain industry, um, they all think it's fantastic. Right. You don't have to upset anybody. You just wreck the planet, but never mind that. That that doesn't matter. The planet doesn't vote for you.
2: We we uh, we, we have these choices, and, and we just keep the leadership. It just make, keeps making bad decisions, and we don't have we don't have the luxury of bad decisions anymore.
1: And that's
0: well. Speaking of leadership, yes. W- what's your opinion of Al Gore?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, I, mean, I, I I liked his film. I thought it was very good up until the last five minutes or so, when I think felt he really threw it away mm-hmm. in terms of just these very feeble solutions. And and I felt that there was a truth too inconvenient for Al Gore to articulate, which was that the American way of life is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, But I'm also uncomfortable with this reinvention, really. I mean, I remember that appalling speech that Al Gore made at the signing of of the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, which was really as bad as anything George Bush has come out with on climate change. And and I know that there were political necessities at work and expediencies at work and that the Senate had already voted 95 to nil to say we're not going to sign this thing. Um, I, I recognize all that, and, and, and I recognize the difficulty of it. But even so, I don't think that excuses the line that Gore took or the way that he and Clinton systematically gutted that Kyoto Protocol until it was not worth the paper it was written on. Mm.
0: You, do you see any leadership in the United States that can uh, lead us forward on this uh, cutting of. Well, go ahead.
1: Sort of, sort of. I mean, I, I'm quite interested in some of the stuff going on at state level, and a lot of it is overblown. I mean, what Schwarzenegger's been doing is a very mixed bag, and yeah. there's some good stuff in there, yeah. but he's also relying on. Approaches which have already been proved not to work. And one of them is carbon sequestration in forestry, for example, another one is biofuels. He's going very big on those things because, again, they are politically painless. And I I suppose the great danger is this that now that the denial industry is on the retreat and is sort of disappearing as a powerful political force, instead, we have this growing feeling amongst people that we want our politicians to say the right things. We want them to take the right moral stand so that we can feel better about ourselves, but we don't actually want anything to change. We want it all. We want to have our holidays on palm-fringed beaches, our monster trucks, our plasma screen TVs, and a clean conscience. And so we want politicians to make promises about climate change, and we want those promises to be
0: broken right now I, you mentioned plasma screen tvs too that's uh, uh i think that's another if we're going to go through a, a transformation here in our entertainment uh receptacles we're going to transfer from, yes. from tubes into into plasma and that's that's five times as much electricity isn't it
2: oh my
1: god it, it's staggering it's yeah. just a staggering use of electricity yeah five, five times as much and And that's per square inch of screen. And you see some of these new screens. They're the size of your your, your front windows. (laughs) They're
0: huge. Yeah, they're (laughs) just massive. Is there is, before Please. before we leave you? Is there anything else we, we've talked about? Air travel, just the big ones. Uh, biofuels. Uh, biofuels. Oh,
1: I, I could go on all night. I mean, I'm 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 I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm warning you. Set me off. And I'll be here <laughs> all day long. Well, 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 We could talk about the domestic stuff. We could talk about heating. We could talk about electricity. It goes on. I mean, there's a lot of it.
2: I, I, I just end on a positive note. I do think that the American people are ahead of the curve. Um, in, in this regard I do, I really do I think that there's a growing recognition There's uh, growing recognition I think that. Katrina brought some of that home um, Some of these uh, major storms that we're experiencing And just the, this is creeping sense that things are not right <laughs> yeah. uh, are, are, Is beginning to sink in And hopefully we can turn this ship around
0: Well, uh, and, and instead of having George go on for uh, since he's been under the weather today, for yes. another hour or so with uh-huh. us, we'll just recommend people to pick up your book, Heat: How to Stop the Planet from Burning.
2: It, it, and it's a great, it's a how-to. We didn't really say as, that as much as we should. It's really, it 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 demonstrates ways in which each one of us can make a difference and also force a political um, imperative on these on our leaders.
1: And, and, and that's the key thing. The key thing is that we have primarily to be better citizens rather than better consumers. We have to get political about this issue.
2: Yes. Well, thank you for joining us here on Weekly Signals, George Mobile.:
1: Thank you. That's my pleasure.
0: To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan and I'm Mike Kaspar, and this is Weekly Signals.